Thank you. Thank you. Beth, I hope you know how much we love you. Remind us that the power of God is still real. That He does change hearts. Jason asked me the other day if I'd be willing to bring a message. And he mentioned that'll give you a chance to go ahead and go back and finish up the sermon that I began a few weeks ago. Was it a month ago or however long it was? And anyway, uh, so I'm like, sure, great, sounds good. And then I remembered what my sermon was about. See, talking about the subject of growing, growing in our love for God, the second part of this sermon is growing in our trust for God. And as I went back and was looking at my notes, I started seeing there that all that I had written was a bunch of cliches. And you know, sometimes sermons are fun and enjoyable or entertaining. Um, This is not one of those. Sometimes sermons are just hard. And the thing that makes this sermon hard really boils down to one thing, and that is timing. Because when trusting God is not easy, what do you say? What can you say say that's more than just empty cliches? And I realized that I didn't have the answers. I remember going back in actually a conversation I had going back in my mind to a time where 
we were struggling. And in this case, it was uh, finances, it was finding a place to live, it was jobs related during those kind of struggles. And I remember what was going through my mind back then. God, I know that you had promised to take care of me. But God, sometimes I wonder if my definition of being taken care of and your definition of taking care of me are two different things. You know, God, I'm thinking we need to get on the same page here. And so, as I started looking at this message closer, to be very honest, my initial thoughts were to be a coward. You know, I've got years of sermons in collecting dust in a file, you know, just go grab one, pull it all, pull it out, you know, uh, talk about, you know, a message about joy and love, and I'll tell lots of jokes, and I'll be hilarious, and everybody will have a great time, and it'll be really encouraging and everything else. Then reality hit. You see, trusting God is so easy. It's so natural, except when it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. And so, because I believe life is hard, and there are times that we are all going to be going through this, where it's going to take every last ounce of your faith to hang on to God. I believe that we need this message. So growing in our trust is the next section. Um, Gita, are you able to come up with that? It is up there. If you want to follow the verses that we'll be using, you are welcome to uh, grab QR code. Now, uh, uh, by the way, Lapita, last time we did this, she was brilliant. She was telling me what she likes to do. She takes extensive notes during a sermon, and then what she would do is she would just take and mail them, uh, email them to, to different friends who, who aren't here. Isn't that, I mean, wow. but what she did is she quickly took a copy and paste of this and then actually just made her notes right in the middle of those verses and then emailed that. I, I mean, I thought that was, that was brilliant. But anyway, so uh, there is uh, that uh, trust. What is trust? First thing we're going to look at. Trust is letting go of the basket. And we're going to begin by reading in Exodus chapter 1, the story found here. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8. I'm telling you right now, it is a lengthy section. So, uh, just, but just hang on with me. Um, are you guys having trouble? Nope. Okay, cool. And by the way, it's on the backboard too, If you, for those in the back of the room, if it's too far away. So, here we go. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8. 
Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Uh-oh, we are in trouble. I see the writing on the wall. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel, in dread of their slaves. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all the labors for which they rigorously imposed on them. And then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra, and the other was named <laughs> Pua. <laughs> and he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Hmm. I don't know why I'm remembering a long 15 hours one day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God and he established households for them then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying every son who is born you shall ooh, you shall cast in the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, I think she was probably prejudiced myself. She hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile with her maidens along, walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, 
This is the coolest story ever. Shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women so that, you may, so that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And when Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she, or he became her son. She named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. Now, I've got to admit to you, there are several things in this story that kind of have me scratching my head. Here it is. Here's this mom who has now hid her child, baby Moses, for three months. Now, my question is this. Why couldn't, if you can hide him for three months, why not four? I mean, I mean, uh, what happened there? What's the rest of the story? In my mind, if Moses' mother felt like this about her child, is it possible that any of the other Israelite mothers felt that way about their child and were reluctant to throw the child into the Nile? Is it possible, I'm reading between the lines, I know this is not Bible, this is me, is it possible that one of those other mothers were caught? And that she was immediately impressed on her that the, the awareness that she couldn't keep hiding this baby forever. I don't know what the motive behind it was. But the day came she knew that she had to do the hardest thing that she's ever done. Do you know that there in Egypt, there was an archaeological dig, and this dig proved to be so amazing and yet disappointing at the same time. In this archaeological dig, they, um, you know, they were expecting to find another King Tut's tomb. <laughs> wow. And so they found this tomb and finally entered this tomb. And there they walked in the tomb and found nothing shiny, nothing gold. In this tomb was nothing but mummies of crocodiles. <laughs> mummies from crocodiles. You see, because the Egyptians worshipped the crocodile. They, they had even invented a god of theirs that uh, um, had the head of a crocodile and the body of a man. And by the way, what was amazing is they, uh, the archaeologists, whatever, who found all these things, walked in there and out of frustration, this literally went and kicked one of those mummies only to find that this mummy, this crocodile, his uh, body had been stuffed with paper. Paper. Little pieces of paper on Greek writing, with Greek writing that had been from 
Not the classical Greek, but the language the, the New Testament was written in, in Koine Greek. Okay, and this Koine Greek um, was considered the language of the common people. As a matter of fact, they found in there um, children's schoolwork graded with red ink. They found in there something that proved to be so enlightening for us as Christians. They found bill of sale, a bill of sale. And on this bill of sale, it said the Greek word for it is finished. The same word, words that our Lord spoke. In other words, when our Lord was on the cross and he said those words, it is finished, he was saying, paid in full. I say all of that to you. They worshipped the crocodile. Why? They worshipped that which they thought was greater than them. They worshipped this crocodile because there were crocodiles in the Nile River. And here's Moses' mother taking her child, putting her child in a basket. Now, by the way, right after I did this message, uh, my grandson and I went out on a canoe. And, you know, when we're going out on this canoe, I said to him, I, 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 you know, being responsible grandpa, right? I, I, I said, well, okay, I need you to put this life jacket on. You don't actually have to strap it, but I want you to have the jacket on until you feel comfortable in the canoe, okay? There was no life jacket for Moses when his mom took him and put him in that basket and put him there in the, the reeds, here in the water, the edge of the Nile River. And I want you to imagine now how hard it must have been to let go of the basket. I'm just horrified thinking about it. To let go with a basket? To turn your back and walk away? No, you can't turn your back and walk away. All you can do is sit and watch this basket float away. Meanwhile, his sister is there. Her other child, her older, uh, Moses' older sister was there and decided you're going to follow it. But you know, we look at this and we learn a lesson. God blessed. And God can bless us. But we got to let go of the, the basket. God, I don't know what's going to happen. God, this is not going to turn out well. I know it's not. And I, when it doesn't turn out well, God, I'm going to tell you I told you so. God, this can't be good for anybody, for anything. And yet, trust is letting go of the basket. 
Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe two things. Two things. He must believe that He is, but there's a second thing. See, there's a lot of people in this world that believe that God is. But there's a second thing, and that is, must believe that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. You see, what we're looking at here in this definition of faith is the fact faith has legs and is willing to move. Faith has legs and is willing to act. And we need to learn that very lesson when that day comes I imagine it's going to be as hard for you as it was for Moses mother trust trust secondly is learning to let go of you to let go of you This week, there was this section of scripture that just kept replaying itself in my mind uh, as I'm on my job driving, driving up to Emporia and back. And, you know, this, this section just kept replaying over and over. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 it says, Because of the surpassing grace or the greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, I want to give you what I believe is the rest of the story on this. Okay? Uh, I know it's, it's open for debate. I believe what happened is that it was 14 years previous to this. He uses that 14 earlier in this chapter. What happened is Paul found himself preaching in the city of Lystra. And there in Lystra, the reception that he received was so astounding, so amazing, that the entire city turned out to hear him. But you see, immediately, those who had been in Antioch... Antioch of uh, Pisidia and then Iconium, the two previous cities where Paul had been, where they took Paul and they beat him. They gave him the same scourging that Jesus received twice. Now they came down and stirred up the crowds there in Lystra. And we're in Lystra, they had, I mean, uh, at first they wanted to try to take and make him a god. Now here they were, ready to kill him. And they took Paul, and they drug him outside of the city. More than likely to the same location that every city had there, outside of the city walls. And that was what we would affectionately call the city dump. You see, that's where they would take the bodies of those who um, were not being buried and they would drag those out there. You see, they would have a constant fire burning in that dump. 
That constant fire would be uh, there to also consume those bodies. So they took Paul outside of the city and they stoned him to death. They thought he was dead. And then Paul writing this chapter here says, I know a man, I think he's talking about himself, and he says, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't even know. I don't know if I was dead or alive. I don't know what was going on. But all I know is I was caught up into heaven, and I saw something very glorious. And to keep me from exalting myself, God also gave me another gift. A thorn. A thorn in the flesh. Paul said he implored implored God three times. You go back and you look at the language, the Greek language this is written in, you find out there is something more that we don't capture in our English Bibles. This word here, it is one of those Greek compound words. And um, the word is uh, parakaleo. And it literally means para, where we get our word parallel, to come beside, okay? And kaleo is where we get our, our, our word call, okay? So it is to call to come beside. It is calling out to God to say, come by me. Lord, I need you with me. So can I ask you, why did he do that? Why did he feel like he had to parakaleo? Because I believe he wasn't feeling like God was very near him right then and there. And so he's calling out to God to, to come near him, to come to his side. To, it was a call for help, for aid, for comfort. And it um, um, is often translated depending on your translation, beseech. I beg you, God. And so he called out to God to come to his side. And yet there was a messenger. It was because there was a messenger of Satan to torment him. This is another one of those Greek words. It literally means to strike with the fist. That Satan was beating him up over this thing. And, you know, we have to feel there the raw wounds of what happened there. You see, I believe the thorn in the flesh that Paul had, as a result of that stoning that occurred, was that he in his face were so greatly grotesque that some of the history writers say that he was hard to look at. I believe the result of being stoned, his eyesight was so poor that to even write, he had to write with huge letters so that he could read it. I personally believe that when he took with him a companion to be with him on his missionary journeys, whose name was Luke, and we affectionately know him as Luke the Great, 
physician, right? That he took a doctor with him because he needed a doctor. I believe all of this plays into this, this word to torment and what he was going through. Have you ever gone to a doctor and had the doctor ask you, oh, uh, the pain you're experiencing, how, what level would you put it? You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you, uh, how would you rate this pain? So where would the word torment fit on that list? <laughs> And it says three times he implored the Lord. Three times he implored the Lord. And uh, you know what? I'm thinking in my mind that when he says he implored the Lord, he was doing far more than saying, God is great, God is good, and we thank you for the food, and please take this away from me. Amen. It was actually three seasons of prayer. That happened here. I believe this, this likely included fasting. I believe this likely included loud cries from this word that he has used in the Greek language, imploring. Three seasons of loud crying. God, don't you understand? Don't you understand how much better it would be? I mean, I know very well people would begin glorifying you. All you have to do is heal me. God, I know. I've been healing all these other people, and you know what? They were glorifying you. Think of it was me. Why am I being made an object lesson? God, this is not fair. Don't you know what I'm doing for you? Don't you know what I'm doing in your name? I've given you everything, and yet what have you given me? Not much lately. And three times God answered him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. I don't know about you, when I'm going through times that are tough, if somebody came to me and spoke those words to me, I would be, get away from me, you. <laughs> well, God's grace is sufficient. I know you can't pay your bills, but God's grace is insufficient. I know you're in pain, but God's grace, I know that you're going to die, but God's grace is sufficient. I mean, the word sufficient literally means that it's constantly available. But my definition of grace. We actually talked about this in a sermon probably six months ago. Is that grace is God's willingness to fill what is lacking in us. God's willingness when our righteousness does not, ex I mean, we, is not on the level that we are to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we know it very well. God's grace comes and fills what is lacking. 
Even in finances, the Bible talks about them giving a gift and giving beyond their means. And there, there was grace. It was the grace of God that was at work providing for them what they were lacking so that they could give. God, I don't know if I can take any more. How much heartache do I need to go through? God! God is willing to fill in what is lacking. What is lacking in our faith. What we have to do is to just keep hanging on. I'm telling you, Life is hard. <laughs> but life apart from Christ is hard. But you know, there's kind of a life lesson to be learned here. Do you know that exercising is hard? <laughs> but not exercising is hard. <laughs> Dieting is hard. But not dieting is hard. Discipline is hard, but not disciplining is hard. I found out last night. Visiting the dentist is hard. But not visiting the dentist is hard. <laughs> So the game we're playing is this. Choose your hard. <laughs> Choose your hard. Trusting God is hard, but trusting in yourself is hard. Trusting in your cleverness Trusting in your good luck. That'll work. Trusting in karma. That. All of these things are there and available to you. You can, you can either choose to trust in God or you have to ask yourself, what are the other options? See, it can't be the fact, well, God, I am just rejecting you. I am going to walk away. It's not worth it anymore. It's a reality that you are choosing to follow one of these other things and put your trust in them. Yeah. Trusting in God is learning not to trust in yourself. And Paul had to learn that lesson. He had to learn to grow in that area. My grace is sufficient because when you are at your weakest, the power of God shines brightest. Because when you are at your weakest, the power of God shines uh, the power of God is working.
Trusting God is learning to trust that God is with us. My son ended up sending me a text message. Uh, and he was throwing out one of these questions. And at first it was one of those questions that was so easy to answer. And, and then it was like I started thinking about my answer. And it had to do with a verse in Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, and I'm going to start in verse 1, but the question he had was verse 2. Maybe you've had this same question before. Exodus 17, 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephaim, and there, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Remember that. We're coming back to it. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What should I do with this people? In a little while, they're going to stone me. The Israelites had no water, and they went to Moses and asked for water. And the question he asked, how is that not trusting God? Have you ever been in need of something and asked God for it? Especially if it was something like water? I mean, normally for us, it's things like, I need a new, new car, God. It's not God, uh, give me this day my daily bread because I don't have anything to eat today and I don't know what I'm going to do. And how was that tempting God? And then his question went on. He said, he uh, said obviously that they were quarreling with Moses, which was wrong. Yes, obviously. But how is that not trusting? So there's his question. So, anyway, my answer begins with verse 5 of that same chapter. The Lord said to Moses, pass, be, uh, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel the sons of uh, quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying here's the rest of the story. Is the Lord among us or not? God, where are you? God, I, I don't feel like you're with me. And those are the very things, words that come through our mouth so often. And oh, oh, we may put it in a, you know, a, a righteous uh, package and say they're there, that, uh, but 
But God, I was just asking for water, and yet we find here the real motive, the real reason, and that is they were not trusting in God because they were saying, God, where are you? God, you're not even here with us. Now, by the way, I want to go now to Deuteronomy chapter 31 in verse 5. It says, the Lord will deliver them before you, and you shall do to them according to the commandments which I have commanded you. And that is, the, uh, uh, you're going to go face all of these armies of the Canaanites, etc. And then he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For, what's he say here? The Lord, your God, is the one who goes with you. You see... This issue that they were facing there at Meribah was the issue that was continuing to stay. And, and, and here Moses and, and God ultimately were the ones who reminded them over and over, but God is with you. That's what they were doubting. But God is with you. Verse 7 uh, uh, oh, the end of that verse. And he will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with the people into the land of the Lord has sworn to the fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be... God is so redundant. <laughs> over and over he's saying it for a purpose. He wasn't being redundant. He was trying to impress it. God is going to be with you. And so do not fear or be dismayed. Now, uh, let's skip down just a little bit. Verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a cloud or a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. And this people will rise up and will... They will play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I've made known to them. In my anger, then my anger will be kindled against them. I will forsake them and they will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say on that day, is it not because God is not among us? That these evils have come upon us? Same song, second verse. God, where are you? It's because God is not with us that all these calamities have happened. But I will surely hide my face in that day because of the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Now, let's take this story here. Meribah. Let's take this story here where they were crying out that God is not with us. And let's go to the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 95 and verse 6 to begin with. If you've not seen this before, 
get ready for goosebumps. This is so sobering to me. It says, Psalms 95, 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Oh, I know those words. <laughs> we sing that all the time. For He is our God, and we are the sheep of His pasture. Uh, the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah. Meribah, as the day of Massa in the wilderness, when you tested me, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. Forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. We sing that song a lot. Come let us worship and bow down. But you know what that song is really the lesson behind that song? is really the right response as opposed to what happened at Meribah and Massa, and that is, God, where are you? God, I don't know how much more out of this I can take. Why have you forsaken me? And so they would sing. They would sing these words. Come, let us worship and bow down. What's the significance of this song? Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. God, you made me. God, you are the one we are, who, who is our shepherd. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Most of us don't like being compared to his sheep. And yet when you look at a sheep and realize how helpless, how desperate they would be without a shepherd, you find there the answer, God, where are you? Because I need you. I need your, I need your protection. There's wolves out there. God, I need your love that you would care for me. God, I need your wisdom to get through this. God, I need you. God, I need you with me. You see, when tragedy comes, he is with us. When tragedy comes, he is in control. When tragedy comes, God is still on the throne. When tragedy comes, we know that our God can still work miracles if he chooses. When tragedy comes, we can know, and sometimes the hardest of all, we can know that he is good. 
When tragedy comes, we can know that he loves us. When tragedy comes, we can know that God is all-powerful. We can know that God has a plan. We can know that all things work together for good. We know that he will not forsake us. When tragedy comes, we can know that he will wrap his loving arms around us. He's our helper. He's our comforter. He is the one we can trust. We can let go of the basket. We can worship. As Moses finished those last words that we've read, it says, Moses was told by God, I want you to go write a song. You come to the next chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. This is your homework. Go read that psalm. It's not one of those Old Testament boring books. It's, a, it's as very much as vibrant as any of the psalms. Read through that psalm. You see, I, uh, God told Moses, I want to put these events, these events that had happened where they questioned where I was, I want to put it into their mind so it sticks. I want these words to be there so that, that whether they're thinking about it or not, that they will have that testimony there that I should have trusted you. And although we don't know the melody or the harmony of Deuteronomy 32, you know what? We've got our song here. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before him. God, you're in charge. I submit to you. We come to him and say, God, you are the shepherd. We are the sheep. And all that that implies, God, I need you. God, I'm going to trust you. Let's stand and sing this song together. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let, oh, wait a minute. I'm singing the wrong song. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your heart. Come, just as you are to worship. Come, just as you are before your God. Come, one day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your heart. Come, just as you are to worship. Come, just as you are before your God. Come.
Amen. Let's stay standing and let's uh, pray together to end our service. God, thank you so much uh, for the message today, Father. And uh, uh, God, we know that uh, our, our prayers are with uh, uh, the Cadwalders and uh, Israel and Lissa right now and, and uh, all that's going on there, Father. We lift them up to you. And, and God, this is a, there are these times that come in our lives that do um, try our souls, Father. They try our faith. They try our relationship with you. And, and God, I pray that whether we're in those moments now or, or we've had those moments, uh, more will come. But God, we do know one thing in all of it is that, God, you are close to the brokenhearted. And God, I pray that no matter what it is, whether times are good, whether times are bad, that we consider you've made one as well as the other and no matter what those times are it is time always whether good or bad to draw near to you to trust in you and to fight and battle to to make it not be about our will but your will be done god i pray as we reflect on this message today that we will decide to let go of the basket that we will decide not to trust in ourselves, Father, but to trust in you, who is the creator and author of all things. We love you as we leave here today. God, let this message not fall on, on you know, deaf ears or hard hearts, but God, help it to really settle in us as this is one of those things, God, that we, we have to do well as Christians. We may not be, you know, we won't be perfect in how we live. We won't be perfect in, in what we do. But, God, we can be perfect in repentance and perfect in giving everything we can and, and giving all of our hearts. We love you. We thank you for everything you do. And as, as a church body, as we prepare many of us to go to Kansas City next week and be together with so many of our other brothers and sisters throughout the region, God, really help this message, again, to just rest on our hearts. We love you. We thank you so much for this time of fellowship we're about to have. And thank you so much for being our mighty God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.